Let me extend to all of you just a very glad, a very joyous Lord's Day this morning. And yet, make no mistake, we absolutely come into this place. We come in with our troubles and our burdens, but our Lord Jesus has invited us here to comfort us, to give us a renewed hope in the midst of those troubles, and to bear our burdens with and for us. We're about to engage in the reading of Psalm 139, and we're going to do that together in what's known historically as a liturgy of call and response. That is, I'll read certain portions of the psalm alone as a sort of call. And then when you see the word together, in parentheses, you'll read with me out loud in response. And let's remember, this is a time of Christ-centered, Christ-focused worship. And God would remind us this morning that what we're about to engage in corporately is no mere duty of Scripture recitation on a Sunday morning. No, we're not just mumbling words into the air in some rote or routine fashion. This is our offering of praise to our eternal King. If we really believe that this psalm, that this Word of God really is, in fact, the Word of God, and if we believe that Jesus Christ is our great substitute, standing in our place, giving us the only hope that we could ever have to be in God's favor, then here's what we must also believe regarding what we're about to do together in the hearing and reading of the Scriptures. These psalms, this particular psalm this morning, this is ultimately God the Son's prayer, Jesus Christ's prayer in poetic form offered on our behalf to God. And think about this. When prayer comes from God to God, when prayer comes from God the Son to God the Father, we can be assured that it's being presented to him perfectly even though our offering of worship, our offering of praise and of prayer is so very imperfect. Romans 8, 26 and 27 tells us that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, helps our weakness for we do not know how to pray. We don't know how to praise. We don't know how to worship as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes, stands in our place for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints. That's you who believe in Jesus, and he does so according to the will of God. This is what Christ is doing for us this very morning. As we hear, as we read Psalm 139, he is presenting it to God perfectly, interceding on our behalf so that God will bless us with the precise love and acceptance with which he blesses his own son, Jesus. So when you hear God's word read aloud, praise God in your heart. When you read it yourselves out loud, praise God in your heart and with your voice, for it is the ultimate reason, 
that God has called us to gather this morning to offer him the praise of our worship, specifically with this psalm of praise. So if you're able, let us stand in awe of what the creator and Lord of our souls has stooped down low to reveal to us about himself through his word. This is what the famed rabbi Aben Ezra calls the crown of all the psalms. This is Psalm 139. This is the word of God. For the choir director, a psalm of David, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You direct my journeying and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you, for you have formed my inward parts, You wove me in my mother's womb. I will praise you with a glad and thankful heart, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies... Take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. Amen. This is the poetic prayer of Christ offered to God on our behalf. This is the word of God for which we all say, thanks be to God. You can be seated. We will let that suffice as our prayer, that scripture this morning. A caveat before we get to our theme, our big idea this morning. This is a psalm of praise. And we are here to discuss the implementation of praise guided by the psalms into our lives. However, 
We're going to fix a little wording problem the church at large seems to have developed over the years. One that often leads us unwittingly into a kind of compartmentalization of our concept of worship. Never in God's economy do we praise and worship. Never do we praise and worship God as if those two things were mutually exclusive. If anything, we would be right to speak of it as the praise of our worship. That is, we praise God because we worship Him. When we worship Him as He demands to be worshipped in spirit and in truth, praising Him will naturally follow. It will naturally, without fail, follow. One literally begets the other. In fact, it's impossible at a meta level to engage in praise without worship, with worship without praise. Again, as long as we're engaging it in the way that God demands we engage it, which is in spirit and in truth. If you want to have coffee later as to how a New Testament John 4 principle applies to an Old Testament Psalms principle, hey, I'll enjoy that coffee, and hopefully so will you. So as we discuss this psalm of praise this morning, we will use the terms praise and worship interchangeably because we must. Our theme for this morning then derived precisely from Psalm 139 itself, sounds a bit like this. Praise that God actually honors is that which lays itself bare, inviting him to examine it thoroughly in the expectation that he will declare it to be genuinely from our heart. Let's do that one more time. We're going to leave this up for the duration of the message. We'll be referring back to this constantly. The theme this morning from Psalm 139, praise that God actually honors is that which lays itself bare, inviting God to examine it thoroughly in the expectation that he will declare it to be genuinely from our heart. And we should add on a solemn note, any praise that does not have the heart behind it to lay itself bare, to be examined by God for its genuineness, is at the very least in danger of not being genuine praise at all. So let us not merely say words of praise, those that we see in this psalm, for instance. Let's not just say words of praise to God. Let's ask Him to examine thoroughly the heart behind those words to see if perhaps it might be Christ being formed within us. I do want to look, because I think this is important in every sermon preached, at how the New Testament gospel, right, we must keep the Old Testament, contrary to some folks in North Georgia with a lot of folks in his church, we must keep the Old Testament, but we do not have our assurance and we do not have our salvation in strictly Old Testament principles. Therefore, since our salvation is assured by the New Testament gospel of Jesus Christ having fulfilled all of the Old Testament, 
We must look so that we don't have a weight on us, right? We must look at how the New Testament gospel is foreshadowed in the Old Testament Psalms, how it's used in the Old Testament Psalms, how we apply it today. This is Christ's poetic intercession in Psalm 139. It's his poetic intercession on our behalf. Remember that in our introduction, we said that Christ has invited us here to comfort us, to comfort his people, that's us, and to bear our burdens with and for us. He does not do so by giving us a new list of rules including our perfect performance of laying our praise before him to be examined. If we could do this perfectly, there would be no need for Christ as our righteous substitute, standing in our place before God. So we must remember first that just as we said earlier, these psalms are, get ready, it's a breakdown, These psalms are Christ's prayers in poetic form written by his servant David, presented again by Christ, the Son of God, to God the Father perfectly on our behalf. You see where we fit in that equation? Way down at the the end, at the last. This is the work of Christ on our behalf. So thus, when we pray these prayers, when we appropriate this psalm as our own prayer to God, we do not need to ask ourselves if we have a purity in our offering of it. Because pure motivation left long ago. Thank you, Adam. We never have had a pure motivation. We never have had a pure offering of praise or prayer and never will this side of heaven. That's not an excuse to just be half-witted about it. It's just the reality. Hence the absolute need for Jesus. Instead, we simply must ask ourselves if even somewhere deep in our soul, under the weight of mess, if it's just even terribly weak and desperate, we need to ask ourselves, do we at least desire for God to search us? To cleanse us from our ways that hurt him and others. So that in that searching we may be led by him in the everlasting way, just as David articulates in the psalm. In other words, as always, God is searching our hearts for what he has sovereignly, as the psalm tells us, placed there. You think he's not going to find it if he placed it there? He's going to find it. He's going to let you know he found it. He's searching our hearts for what he has placed there in terms of a desire for him. And he's doing that before he's ever concerned with our righteous performance. You see, the former, the desire, it's perfect, even in our weakness, because why? Because God placed it there. The latter, the performance of it, did I say the former was performance? Yeah, the former is desire. I've got words here. I'm reading them. The former, the desire, is perfect because God placed it there. But the performance of that desire is always imperfect. It is always imperfect. Why? Because of our weakness. Jesus says, makes it clear in Matthew 26, 41, that the Spirit is... Hello, the Spirit is... Willing... And the flesh is 
very weak. Hence the utter need for Christ, who not only causes the desire in us, but makes our weak, and get this, Jesus makes our weak and even often non-existent efforts perfect so that they are accepted by the Father. If you take that as an excuse to just go on and do whatever you want to do in the faith, that's your business. We're going to leave that between you and Jesus. May the Spirit deliver you to the woodshed, as he will. So when we hear that our praise must be laid before God, bear to be examined, we need not be anxious about how well we do that, but simply that we do it. If we can say that our heart desires to lay itself open to God's scrutiny, whatever our actions may often betray, then we can be certain that just as verse 4 tells us, that before we ever begin to praise him, our praise is already being offered perfectly. Because why? Because he knows our thoughts from afar. Because before a word is on our tongue, he already knows it. Because he himself has placed it there by way of his Holy Spirit. Wow. Wow. Driving down the road. Wonderful folks at this church. But the sign says, may God bless you today just as you bless him. I don't know what that means. But I expect in a world, in a church world of do all you can, a lot of us in the Presbyterian world could hear a lot more about, yeah, you need to do some stuff. Sorry. <laughs> True. Guilty. But do it to the point that that causes you the consternation and anxiety and depression and worn-outedness where you cannot seem to rest in Christ because you're so worried about you? You got a sexual thing, you got an anger thing, you got a drug and drinking thing, you got an indifferent thing, you've lost your faith, your faith has weakened. I don't do enough. I don't do enough. You know what God wants you to say? He wants you to say, lay that praise bare. Don't be praising me because that cool song on 88.1 is just making me feel so good. You know what? There might be some good to that. That's great. Some of it I'm highly suspect of. I'm just going to say it out loud. However, be a discerning Christian. Be a discerning Christian and glean from it what you can, but nevertheless, lay that praise and that worship bare and say to God, I am having a good emotion, a terrible emotion. Whatever it is, please search me. Please let this be real. When I got saved, when I came away from that church that night, October the 28th of 2001, this sounds like Baptist speak. Well, it is. I got in my truck after the hoopla of, oh, Mike Shockey, just absolute, just mean man of the town. Oh, I was bad. I was bad. It's like the whole town turned out to see my baptism. It's crazy. 300 people in the church. Oh, we're going to go over, by the way. Anyway, so 300 people in the church. All of them, I just want to hug your neck. I just want to hug your neck. When you was cussing that boy out in my driveway that time, I was just praying for you. The point is this. There was a lot of hoopla about getting saved, and I wept my eyes out. You know what I did when I got in my truck? I didn't know to do this. I didn't know this because I was doctrinally sound. I am now. Just kidding. I did... 
I didn't know this. I got in my truck, and I'm all by myself, and I looked up, and in tears, I said, God, I've lied to myself with emotions and with feel good and feel bad for so long. I, I don't want this to be that. I want this to be honest, and I want it to be real. I want it to be real. Let us find our Matthew 11 rest from our religious labors through the Messiah, just as David did. I don't want to pit these against each other as if it's an either or. It is a both and. But there will be some emphasis on the either or. I pray you can discern this. There is the praise born of belief. And then there is the praise born of faith. You'll notice that to this point, I've offered no real theology of the psalm itself on purpose. All the theological premise I've talked about so far has deliberately been on the deep intent and desire of our hearts as it pertains to the robustness of our relationship with God, coupled with the crucial biblical doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Christ, Him standing in our place. Also, I've done that on purpose and that's because Christ, who is guiding David's heart in the writing of the psalm, just like he guides us in the reading and hearing of it, Christ is showing us that while right, doctrine is crucial. We can have all the faith in the world, but what do you got it in? You better have it in some pretty good biblical doctrine, Christ-centered, grounded biblical doctrine, or you just have happy feelings. There's plenty of people with faith in Buddha. Right doctrine is crucial, can't be ignored. David is unwittingly giving us wonderful doctrine in this psalm. But those who just focus on doctrine, they're doing, Christ is showing us in this psalm that what they're doing is a little more than what James 2.19 says, demons who also know good doctrine can do to profess plenty of belief, plenty of knowledge, and yet have no true faith in the one about whom their supposed belief is speaking. That is not meant to condemn. Maybe, if you don't know Christ, and you're realizing that for the first time, if you do know Christ, and that's what you tend to do, it is absolutely intended to convict Lay it bare. Lay it bare. That's the crux of this psalm, according to David. David is, in fact, proclaiming truth after glorious truth about God and some incredible doctrine we must believe if we want our beliefs to be consistent with the whole of Scripture. And yet, David is conveying these wonderful things in this psalm under the auspices of his intimate relational dynamic with God. What we see in a majority of Psalm 139 is a man who absolutely knows the God of whom he's writing. He knows him. And the language of his praise, of his worship, is beautiful. It's very pensive. That means it's very deeply thought about for a majority of the reflection in Psalm 139. But here we go. Ready? Record player people. And across that record, here comes the needle. Other people who don't know records and record players, you can't get those years back, man. 
David has spent all this time in beautiful glorying of God, in the confidence of his wonder of what God has done for him. But then note the incredible, completely interruptive shift in tone starting, if you didn't notice, at verse 19, ending in verse 22, David says, suddenly, literally out of nowhere, been talked about for 3,000 years of of his existence, that this just happens. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. Well, suddenly we've just gone to imprecatory prayers. Have we? Well, kind of. Let's see. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. What do you think Jesus would say to David when he's talking about his enemies this way? You can't gloss over these kinds of shifts in tone. You can't do that when you see it in Scripture if we're to take God's Word seriously. This stark, sudden contrast in verses 19 through 22 must be accounted for. Otherwise, here's what happens. There becomes a glaring inconsistency which many critics of Scripture have offered to us from this passage. There becomes this near contradiction in the psalm. And God's word, let me just tell you, and it's just because I say it's true, obviously, but God's word is no more contradictory with itself than God is with himself. So we cannot go into this thinking, well, this just got stuck here maybe sometime in the 5th century B.C. when all the people were returning back from exile and they wanted to stop, stop. No, no. Man, I make a pretty good debater because I'm just like, whatever you just said, meaningless. Let me tell you what's going on, right? There's confidence. I don't know how good it is. (laughs) I don't even know if it's right. It's the way I feel. Just kidding. Why are verses 19 through 22 there? Do they tell us something about the original idea behind why this psalm is ever written in the first place. Spoiler alert, yes. Yes. If you don't have these verses, you don't really know what's happening in this psalm. You don't know the heart behind it. You don't understand why he's talking about everything he's talking about. Remember that a vast majority of David's concern previously throughout the psalm seems to be the proclamation of the greatness of God. Is it not written literally there before our eyes? Did we not just hear and read it? What, God's absolute sovereignty in creating us? In ordaining every aspect of our lives before they ever began in knowing us in more detail than we know ourselves and in, hear this if you didn't hear anything else today, his wonderful love and sovereignty in keeping us for himself through the darkness of our adversity and rebellion against him. But in actuality is mere praise David's chief concern in this psalm. Well, we're going to submit It's not possible for it to be his chief concern. And that the incredible interruption we just spoke about a moment ago in verses 19 through 22, it's part of the proof that David's chief concern simply cannot be merely praising God with mere words of truth about God. It's a glorious psalm. We love the words. We love the doctrine that it purports. 
David's chief concern is, however, that the praise of his worship of God, it's offered to God in spirit and in truth, which again, coincidentally or not so coincidentally, is how God the Son teaches us in John 4 that God the Father demands to be worshipped. Must be. You can't do it any other way. Or it's not worship at all. If indeed, if you're going to worship him, if our Theme is suggesting that we want God to honor our worship, Christ notwithstanding, right? We know it's accepted through Jesus. We're talking about what our response is to what Christ has done and is doing. And if we want him to offer it, must be done in spirit and in truth. So in summary, David's primary concern in Psalm 139 is that the praise that he offers, the worship that he offers God, is not from mere belief, but that it flows from the very faith that God has given him so that he might believe in. So that David, God has given him this so that he might believe in and proclaim the attributes and glory of our good living God. What's the other part of the proof we have that David's primary concern is not just speaking out words of praise? It's the significant proof that if Christ is the ultimate author of this psalm, and he is, He is the Word. He is the Word manifest. He is the Word written. And He is the Word who came and dwelt among flesh. He is the Word. Don't you think there's anything in Scripture that is not Christ? If Christ is the ultimate author of this psalm, and he is, then we have an obligation, therefore, to apply from the, or to the psalm what we know from the Gospels about Jesus. That Jesus' primary concern is always the heart and not the action. Why? Because Jesus knows, as must we, as David knows in the psalm, action will only follow where the heart first leads. Here's the massive difference between the praise born of belief and the praise born of faith and where it comes to bear. Remember this, that plenty of well-meaning Pharisees with terrific doctrinal positions, they were judged by Jesus to be eternally damnable, damnable, eternally damnable because of their hard hearts, not because their doctrine wasn't solid, but because they did not act on what they said they believed. These hard hearts that knew Psalm 139 like nobody's business and they ignored David's plea for God to search him and open him and know him in the midst of his own doubt and indifference and ambiguity. All for the sake of being right. All for the sake of being right. David was never going to be satisfied with just being right being right about the greatness of God. He wanted as we should want today, now, to have God lay him open so that he could be sure that his praise, his worship was coming from a heart bent towards the humility of God and not bent towards the pride of self. There's a Hebrew term at the end that is our final proof. It's transliterated as anxious for us. Know my anxious 
thoughts. And we're going to read that together here in just a second to close. Know my anxious thoughts. That is saif in the Hebrew. You know what, what that means? <laughs> David says, know my divided, my indifferent, my doubting, my ambiguous my not focused on you and fully focused on myself, though I know I should not be. Know those thoughts. He's not just saying know them. He's saying take them away. Take them away. Let me praise you in the midst of this because I know this isn't right and I cannot get rid of it. God, so if you know it, if you've already searched me, search me again. And in that Hebrew phrase, search me, at the end, where he reprises that idea, it's not just search me just this time. It is the emphasis based on that anxiety that he's professing about his praise and the lack of quality of that praise that he is saying, search me again and again and again. Nothing is more important to me, Lord, than knowing that I am loving you, that I am praising you, that I am worshiping you, and I'm not caught up in some church crap. I'll catch some flack for that. Maybe rightly so. It's real, nonetheless. How do we account ultimately for the change in tone in verses 19 through 22? Well, are we going to go to the German theologians? That's okay, I'm German, I can do the accent, right? It's all good. Frederick Kyle, or Friedrich Kyle, he says when he's summarizing the psalm, he's done this huge workup in Hebrew in the original language. Here's what he says, and we'll close here with this. In verses 19 through 22, what we're seeing is that the poet, David, regards the adversaries of God as enemies of his own. Such is the relation of David to the enemies of God, but he does not indulge in any self-glorification. On the contrary, David sees, here it comes, David sees in his enemies the same danger which threatens himself and prays for God in his sovereignty not to give David over, not to give him over in judgment as God has done for the enemies of God. David is saying, I don't want you to give me over to the same self-delusion that these people are living in. He wants God to lay bare his soul, and we cannot help notice but the fact that you have searched me, which at the beginning the psalm confesses, I'm still quoting, is at the end of the psalm turned into a desperate petitioning as though David must be certain of the quality of his praise to God. Search me, he says, and know my heart. And to that quote I will add, and show my true heart to me, O God, in conviction, not in condemnation, I pray, so that I may never suffer under the same self-delusion as those who either despise God completely or who worship him with empty, self-gratifying, purely emotional words. Give me over to praising you in spirit and truth. Don't give me over to a hard heart. That's the candor with which we approach and appropriate Psalm 139 in our own lives. We do it by faith with right belief. Not by simply believing that all those words are true and then that's the end of it. 
that'll help us do what the theme encourages. Lay our praise bare before God, letting him examine it, inviting him, inviting him to examine it thoroughly. For what reason? Because in the act of laying it bare, there is the proof, there is the proof that he will declare it to be genuine. Do you know that? That you want to lay it bare. 